Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. My name is Ashley Giordano, and I'm your host for this episode. And today I'm in Johannesburg, South Africa with... Hi, y'all. I'm Mary Hannah. And I'm Andy. And we are, we make up Expedition Row. We are right now traveling from, the original plan was Cape Town to Cairo, um, but we have been in Southern Africa now for four months and fates and stars just aligned and we got to meet up with Ashley here. So pretty Yay. excited to sit down with everyone and just kind of chat through the last couple of years of travels. And Yay, thank mm. you so much for joining me. <laughs> I've been eager to have you guys on the podcast for quite some time. I've been following your travels for a long time. So I'm really excited about this Thank opportunity you. to sit down yeah. and chat. And yeah. you have a wealth of Overland experience. So it'll be really fun to pick your brains and get some practical tips for those folks listening on the podcast. We'll do our best. <laughs> this content is brought to you by Overland Journal, our premium quality print publication. The magazine was founded in 2006 with the goal of providing independent equipment and vehicle reviews, along with the most stunning adventures and photography. We care deeply about the countries and cultures we visit and share our experiences freely with our readers. We also have zero advertorial policy and do not accept any advertiser compensation for our reviews. By subscribing to Overland Journal, you're helping to support our employee-owned and veteran-owned publication. Your support also provides resources and funding for content like you are watching or listening to right now. You can subscribe directly on our website at overlandjournal.com. So you guys are traveling in a 2010 Land Rover, Land Rover Defender, Defender 110. Yes, yeah. ma'am. You knew it. <laughs> nice. And name is Tango. Nice. It actually got named Tango before, before we'd we even, actually bought it. Yeah. So at the time we were in Bolivia on the Uyoni Salt Flats. We did the typical Land Rover thing. We were like, F Land Rovers, we're going to go buy a Toyota. <laughs> and then I started looking online and we ended up getting another Land Rover. But yeah. while we were looking at it, we were like, this is Tango. And then yeah. it just stayed throughout. And then we said, if we win this auction, we'll go to Africa. And yeah, we so won the auction was, yeah. and now... That was 2019. So the original plan with this vehicle, we bought it on an auction site. Like Andy said, we were in Bolivia and he was just looking as he always does at the market for vehicles and stuff. Came across this one and it was a great deal. And we we're like, okay, let's just go for it. We were considering Africa at this point in time. And we basically decided if we did buy it, if we won the auction, then we would go to Africa. Won the auction, fast forward four months, we flew back over to the UK built it out and then we shipped it to South Africa. So this was now March of 2020. Everyone knows how March of 2020 went. So COVID kind of like the lockdowns began about three days after we actually shipped it. We got the word, we called the company. We're like, hey, can we get it off the ship? They're like, yeah, for pretty much the same thing that you're paying to ship it all the way to South Africa. Whoa. So we're like, well, we might as well just risk it for the biscuit at this point. And we went ahead and shipped it to South Africa. Five months later, after it being in storage, we shipped it back to the UK, did a couple of other trips, like UK to Turkey, up to the Arctic no, Circle. No, UK to Sweden, then not Turkey. 
Yeah, but we did UK to Turkey, and then we also did. Come yeah. In here, yeah, yeah. And then after all of that, and after kind of the world opened back up, we never really gave up on the Africa dream. And so in February of this year, now 2023, we shipped Tango back down to Durban for round two. And yeah, now we're about five months into what should be about a year long trip. We'll see how it all goes. That's awesome. So a little bit of perseverance paid yeah. off for sure. <laughs> so when you were in Bolivia at the Cellar de Union, you saw this for sale, you were on another trip at that point. Yeah. I 20. love when that happens. You're like on a trip, thinking about another trip. I, yeah. it always I feel happens. like that's usually the way it goes. But that trip, we originally thought, oh, we're just going to do the California to Argentina trip, and then that'll be it. And then it was in Bolivia that yeah. the conversations really started. And that that trip for us were like we'd never well we'd never even heard we didn't know overlanding were a thing we thought oh we're just gonna drive and probably not see anyone like <laughs> us and you know Surprise! no one yeah. else is doing this type of thing you know we looked at the map and we thought oh we'll drive from here to here in like you know probably take like two and a half months <laughs> naive yeah. so naive I and it was your idea yeah, yeah. it took us like nine and that was pushing it that time period just to give a little bit of context andy was on a two-year visa in the U.S. His visa was coming to a close and we were both living in California. And it was kind of like we had the vehicles. We had never done a long trip. We had done like four-day weekend trips, you know, in Joshua Tree and up to Yosemite and stuff like that. And he was like, hey, I really think I'm going to do this trip from California to Argentina. We've got the vehicle. I've now got the time. The, my visa's running out. And I was just kind of like, okay, I'll see you when I see you, you know, type of thing. And How long had you been together at that point? Uh, Maybe four years? Something like that. Oh, okay. So yeah. it had been a little while then. Yeah. 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 I left the British Army and then got a visa for California. And that were like a 20-month visa. So I was just working at a little independent Land Rover garage, which were good because it got my confidence up as well for the trip. But LR3 or Discovery 3 to the rest of the world came into the shop and a guy were going to get rid of it because it needed a new transmission. And I think I paid like $3,000 for it. And my boss said, oh, you can take this old... One, one out of a Range Rover Sport, a transmission out of a Range Rover Sport, put that in, and that's the vehicle that basically took us to the bottom of South America. So like a $3,000 vehicle. Yeah. And like everyone gives, you know, a Land Rover a bad name. It was still on original air suspension and it's got 220,000 miles on the clock. And, Whoa. Yeah. But this is kind of a cool full circle moment for Andy and I, because Andy was trying to convince me in 2018 to quit my corporate nine to five job and go on this trip from California to Argentina. That was a really big thing for That you. was a really big thing, because I was very comfortable in my career. I had a great job and I knew kind of the direction I was going and all of that. So I really struggled with the idea of leaving that and not being able to come back to it. So when the first the idea first came up, I was like, yeah, it's a no-go for me. Like, it's a non-starter, not, like, not even having a conversation about it. And then after a couple of months of, and this is kind of like the full circle moment, Andy was showing me, like, Richard and Ashley's Instagram profile. And it was like, these guys are doing it. We could do it too. You know, and then Sorry. like, yeah. And then I would come home from work and he would casually have X Overland on the screen at the time. This is when they were on like Amazon. And so we were, I was just starting to like open my eyes to the fact that, oh, there is other people doing this. I didn't even know that, like you said, overlanding was not in our vocabulary. This was not on our radar at all. And so that was the point that I was like, okay, we could, we could maybe do this, you know? And so, yeah, about 
a month before we actually left. Well, we only decided to do this trip three months before we set off as well. Yeah. So like you had two months where you were like, no, I'm not going to do it. And then I showed them your profile and I'm like, these can do it. Because I think the problem is with international overlanding and you've never done it before is you're getting advice off people that have never done it. They only see things on the news or whatever. And then we started saying, let's only take advice of people that have actually done it yeah. from, from that day forward. And then yeah. that sort of changed your mind a bit and like getting out of that American bubble and <laughs> saying, nah, let's yeah. let's just leave the job. She was so scared of leaving work and like all work would have surpassed her and she'd never be able to catch up again where realistically that's not a thing. That's really important to bring up because there is a sense of security and safety and predictability and a lot of people have asked me about that and I know a lot of other travelers have had the same question. It's like what are you going to do when you get back? What are you going to do about your job when you get back? Are you going to be able to go back to that job or get another one and will you be able to find work afterwards and so yeah it's a really good point to bring up about it's important to feel that safety and that security and that stability yeah i think it was one of those of like i don't know the fear of missing out on such a big life experience is probably fomo in the simplest of terms was what convinced me to end up actually going but then from there i think the moment that we just did moment I decided to go was the moment that I started channeling all of my energy into the trip and then other opportunities ended up coming up and we made a plan around uh, for me it was really important to continue my career on the road I really didn't want to take this year-long gap or at the time it was supposed to be a year we're now like four or five years in and I didn't want to have that gap in my resume or whatever it is to then come back and say, oh yeah, we just decided to drive around the world. I really wanted to continue networking. I really wanted to continue all those relationships that we had. And now four or five years in, I wouldn't want it any other way. And I do feel comfort in the fact, like Andy knew this prior to me knowing it, of like, there's always gonna be another job and there's always gonna be another opportunity and whatever you're doing in life is probably preparing you for the next thing anyways. So right now I feel very confident in the fact of like, if we decided to stop traveling tomorrow, I could probably find a job very easily just simply because of our experience and the other stuff that we've done outside of what a typical nine to five job is. Mm -hmm. So I think that's something that anyone that's considering a long-term trip there's probably some type of fear or obstacle that they're encountering. It may not be a job thing. Figuring out whatever that is and then recognizing, is it a true fear? Is it a true, like, is it actually true in your life that you're not gonna be able to find another job? Or is it you just giving pushback to the opportunity because you're a little bit scared? And I was definitely scared of walking away from my job because I didn't, it's the unknown. But ultimately, anything in the overland space, at least to us, is like, you can sit at home and be very comfortable. But overlanding to us is all about getting outside of that comfort zone, pushing past that and trying to find new experiences, whether it's in your home country and it's close to home or if it's around the world somewhere. And so I think that was the first kind of like break in the mold for me to open my eyes to say, okay, there might be something else out there and it doesn't all have to be scary. We'll probably figure it out. It's also a muscle. Yeah. I feel like. Yeah, Because I've been in those situations as well where we've taken a break and we're getting back on the road. And I'm like, are we, can we do this? Yeah. I'm so comfortable and everything's predictable. Having a little mental crisis about it. 
and then you leave and you're like, yep. it's okay. Yep. Well, that was this past month. We've been home in the U.S. for a month. We went to just visit family and stuff. And just being surrounded by that on a day-to-day basis, I was like, yeah, we still have like half a trip in Africa. It's like a totally different mindset and it's so easy to go back into that. So that just shows you just a month at home. We were like, okay, we live here now. Yes. And you can do that at any point. So it's like almost forcing yourself on a daily basis, like just little things. Of- I think basically you need to remind yourself that like what is a year out of your life yeah. in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. It's nothing if you would just keep going as you are, mm. but should you take the risk it's probably a year that you'll never forget and a year that you'll probably talk about when you're 70 year old or or whatever that would be yeah i can't agree with that more i think it's and if you hate it you probably have the resources to to go go back home and set up shop there home's always going to be there and it's probably you'll you'll go back after a say for instance i've been in california for a couple of years then we've done central south america then i've not been home for three years at that point mm-hmm. and i think oh you know like what's gonna and then you get back people are still in the same seats talking about the same things doing this doing the same thing so you're not gonna miss out yeah generally yeah i think life is going to continue on but you can pop back into it at any point and that's kind of the beauty of it so i don't know i don't think anyone should ever be scared to just Go for it, like whatever and, that may be. And just like you said about going going back home, a lot of people have a, a worry that, you know, something might happen with family or whatever and, and you're on a different continent. Well, for us, um, Mary Hamner's grandma got sick and we were in the top of Botswana. We just went on Google when we found some signal, right, where's the next flights? I, it happened to be in Johannesburg, which was, you know, like an 800 mile drive, but drive there, 800 mile, get on the plane. Before you know it, you're back in America. Yeah. So you're never that far away from the comforts of home anyway. So even if you feel like you're in the middle of nowhere, well, if something did come up, then it's quite easy to get out of wherever you are, you know? Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I think people see, oh, that's so far away. That's so scary. That's so out there, whatever it may be. But you're really not like it's 2023. You're never really that far away from technology or airport or yeah, and once you're on your on the ground, you adapt and learn, yeah. and every day you take one at a time. Yeah, so, totally. tell me about shipping from the UK to South Africa. Like, where did you ship into? Yeah. What was the process like? Do you have any advice? I How think, did it go? Yeah, I think that's a much easier process than most people think. We decided to ship to Durban rather than Cape Town because Durban has great storage options. So rather than being on the ground when the vehicle actually arrives to actually unload the container, there's an agent there that unloads the vehicles, brings it to the warehouse, does all of the customs paperwork, and then you basically fly down whenever you're ready to fly down. Which is one thing as well, like say you use Durban over Cape Town, it's generally cheaper to keep it in the storage facility in Durban. And therefore you should always allow yourself a couple of weeks like have the vehicle sat there for a couple of weeks if like the shipping company say to you oh it's going to be here on this date at least give yourself a couple of weeks because it probably won't be we didn't do on this trip so they told us let's just say it was the 15th we said okay well we'll book our flights for the 30th and then we actually ended up having a two-week delay in germany that two-week window sounded really great when we first booked our flights but with that two-week delay we were going to get there before the vehicle and then we'd be paying for hotels and all of Mm -hmm. that stuff so we ended up 
I think we just paid the change fee, which was like $250 or something, and we moved our flights back. But in hindsight, we should have just, there was no rush. We were putting the timelines on ourselves. We should have just booked the flight for, you know, a month out from when our vehicle was actually supposed to arrive. Um, it can be unpredictable. I yeah. think that's the hard thing about shipping, yeah. where it could show up on time yeah. and be ready in yeah. two days, or yeah. it could take a couple of weeks. But yeah. that's so the beauty like, of using Durban, because even if it is sat there for a month, it's not going to cost you a lot of exactly, storage, and yeah. it's safe. Like, um, we've done this shipping route twice because of COVID. So Tango sat in Durban for like just over five months. Yeah. So before we had to ship him back to the UK. But the main reason, so we were actually in Turkey when we decided to come back to Africa <laughs> for this time around. We were originally going to ship from Turkey to Egypt and then drive down. Other people may find it is different in their case, but for us, it was so difficult to get any quotes for that route. And everything was more expensive than actually for us to drive back from Turkey all the way to the UK and then ship down wow. to South Africa. Whoa. So we decided we've already done that route before. We know the process. It's really simple. Let's just do that. So, of course, that doesn't make sense for everyone, but for us, it was way easier to just go from the UK to Durban than to go from Turkey to Egypt. And we know the process on the actual like South Africa side. So we knew that it wasn't gonna be painful where we've heard Egypt can be quite difficult as yeah. far as like paperwork, vehicle paperwork, all of that stuff. So we were like, we'll deal with that when we're actually on the ground in Egypt rather than having to do that from afar. And, sure. and we used a company that we already know and yes. trust. Yeah. So we use a, I think we use those in South America too, but a company called IVSS. They just sort it all out for you. So yeah. it's as easy as it can get really. So How did you decide on who you're gonna use? Like in the, in the initial planning stage when you're like, oh, we need to get this vehicle shipped. What do I do next? So you know? we, I think in our original shipping was we went from Buenos Aires back to Texas. So we had our LR3 Discovery 3 for the rest of the world in Buenos Aires with us and we needed to ship it back to the US. And we got quotes from all these different companies and IVSS just seemed really on the ball, really good at communicating. I and think, we decided to ship with them. I think we didn't even know what to Google at the time. Like you, you start Googling vehicle or shipping or container shipping yes. and then like all these house movers come up and yeah. we're like wow this is yeah. difficult and then we finally i don't know how we find ivss it must have been on google and then we called him and he was just like yeah i saw it Ever as soon as we spoke to him then he were like why would we go anywhere else yeah. and they just know us there now so i mean they keep a file of everyone and it's really easy to say like, hey, I shipped with you guys last year. We're looking to ship again. Um, and they're usually pretty good. You can either even go on their website and put in your destinations and get an instant quote. And then they will give you from there like a more detailed quote once you're further down the line, which is great because sometimes like right now we're debating because the Sudan situation is not looking so great. We're debating what our options are for our Trans-Africa trip. It's easy to like we did it two nights ago, three nights ago. We just went onto the website and said, OK, point A to point B what are these three different options and what do those route prices look like so we can start to compare. So to us, that's just been the easiest like customer service side of things, website side of things to, nice. to do. Yeah. It's awesome too that anybody who's looking to ship to Durban probably you know could reach out to you guys or if yeah. if you're on instagram or any of the facebook groups like the overlanding facebook groups if yeah. people are really willing to take the time to um respond about uh what their experience was like shipping yeah especially if it was recent 
yeah. then you know well, and that's, you can it's check it's in. It's ever changing. Like the mm-hmm. prices during COVID skyrocketed, and then we just hit it at the perfect time to ship back down to Durban. The prices went from sixteen grand. grand I think, no, right? some of them were yeah. crazy during COVID, and then they came back down to around the three grand mark. So that's another thing is a lot of people who may have not shipped a vehicle before because that's not like a common thing you know unless you're doing international travel i think a lot of people think it's way pricier so they see oh my god you're shipping your vehicle around the world that's insane you guys must be so wealthy it's around three thousand dollars which if you're going to be anywhere for an extended period of time for us for this route for example if you're going to be anywhere for an extended period of time that's cheaper than what you could rent a vehicle Mm -hmm. for in south africa for a week and a half it just makes sense for this particular style travel for us to ship wherever we can yeah i think if you're going to come down here because a lot of people if you're going to rent an overland vehicle south africa is probably one of the best places in the world because you can get even if you want just something simple like a hilux with a roof tent up to like a truck bed camper and or even i've even seen unimogs for rent but if you are planning to do say like a two or a three month trip you probably want to price that up against shipping your own vehicle from wherever you are and you might find that it's actually cheaper to just use your own vehicle how many days did it take for your vehicle to i want to say the first time we shipped it was 32 days and this time it was closer to like 44 days from door to door basically and where did you ship out of was it portsmouth or no it was folkestone Folkestone? so like the south the south of england okay yeah and then once you're on the ground I'm assuming you've done some research and let's talk about South Africa and logistics and planning and what maybe what were the most useful resources for you when you were planning your trip where you're on the road while you're here? I think a lot of people probably plan a lot more than we do. So Andy and I are kind of like we like to get a general plan of you know, point A to point B and the musty spots of where I, we're I'll normally go. do the point A to point B. So I'll yeah. say, right, I think we can get from, you know, Cape Town to Cairo or whatever. And then I'll look in between that, like, right, which countries do we need to avoid because they're unstable right now or civil wars or whatever yeah. is going on in More the world. Like a safety so I'll, I'll think of like, generally the safety thing and then from then on she'll make the nice things (laughs) (laughs) make it all happen we don't overwhelm ourselves with planning an entire trip in one sitting so that is wise yeah it's a lot so rather than do that just take it in little bite-sized chunks so We'll plan the general route. Like Andy said, he'll look at it from a safety, political landscape perspective. We'll say, okay, we're going to do this to this. And then we look at, okay, where are the must-see places that we've always dreamed of going? And we kind of map those out. A lot of the time we already have them mapped out because we just kind of are in a constant state of planning. Is that kind of like from Instagram or blogs or everything? Just, or? I think everything. We just yeah. always add points to our Google Maps. And so it's just like want to go, want to go, want to go, want to go. If you see something come up, then yeah. you go into your map. Yeah, yeah. just drop, yeah. A, drop a pin there. Yeah. Nice. A route starts to form of like, oh, this is, okay, I can kind of see all the dots starting to connect. And then from there, once we're actually in the area, that's when it's like a week to two weeks out is when we get down to the more nitty gritty. We really start talking to like locals and people come in the opposite direction because yeah say for instance like you you know yourselves you drove the pan-american north to south right but then there's always people coming the opposite way yes. and then yeah. they'll say oh you need to see this this and this so there's things there's no point planning too much because you'll get yeah. a lot of advice like a couple of weeks mm-hmm. out in south africa or in southern africa we've been using tracks for africa so much on this trip that's great for any of like the back road stuff are you um, using their paper map or app or we're using the app 
the app. Yeah, okay. you bought the like premium version, which is great because it gives you all these points of interest along the way as well. And you can zoom in closer. You can zoom in really close. So we've been using that a lot and then, you know, trusty IO for Lander. Oh yeah. For just, just, just a good resource for anybody that's on the road. So that's like our two primary things that we've been using here but we always try and leave flexibility in the route, no matter how dialed in we think our plan is for any mishaps, mechanical breakdowns, or simply just someone saying, I really think you should head here because you may have the perfect plan in your mind, but someone who actually lives there probably knows a little bit more on Mm -hmm. the best places to see or the spots that aren't as discussed as much. Um, So we, yeah, we usually try and pull everyone where we can to say like, okay, if you were on this trip, what would you do? And then kind of tailor the route to that as well. Uh, What have been some big highlights for you two on this part of the trip in South Africa? For me, we came from Durban and then we headed north and there's a little country within South Africa called Lesotho. And I think it's the highest country in Africa, pound for pound, however you want to word it. But that was such a cool, like, welcome to Africa feeling. You know, like, how you imagine Africa after watching it on the TV. It's like rich red dirt roads and like green lush mountainscapes everywhere. And just like all the villages that you go through and stuff. It was just such a cool... Your arm ends up aching because you're waving at that Yeah, you're like, hey, hey. You know, everyone's just so friendly. And, and the like, kids are chasing you down yeah, the street. Yeah, and yeah. they love your vehicle and they think it's cool and yeah. everyone's nice to you. And it was just so that, really that were a really big look. highlight for me. Yeah. Uh, and then the other thing is in northern Namibia, seeing the Himba tribe there yeah. and trying to communicate, even though we can't <laughs> speak each other's language and like sharing things like we give them a gift and then they give us a gift and then they, we show them inside <laughs> our house and they showed us inside their house. and Yeah. Yeah, that were cool. I feel like it's those moments of like almost humanity where you're like, ah, this is so neat. Like we couldn't speak their language at all and they couldn't speak English, maybe like a yes or no or something like that. Breaking down all the barriers and feeling like this is why you're here, you know, to have those moments of interaction and human connection and stuff. Getting that real 4D experience of like, you can see on TV and it's nice. Don't get me wrong, I love watching David Attenborough or whatever, but... (laughs) Like when you get there for yourself and you you can actually like smell the place and feel the place and that's yeah. that's why you do it. Yeah. And they're genuinely interested yes. in you. And yeah. we visited the Himba tribe in northern Namibia as well. And it was such an incredible experience. But I was also kind of like, yeah. I don't want to offend. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, 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 that's yeah. quite a difficult thing anywhere you go because like... Trying to read it. Yeah, yeah, you're reading the room and also we like to document a lot of our stuff. And so you never want, you want to always be respectful anywhere you're going that you are admiring and appreciating a place and it's not coming off as like someone's just coming in and being a tourist and snapping a photo and then walking away. Yeah. So we are very mindful of that everywhere that we go. And sometimes like we won't pull the camera out at all only if it really feels like we're on a friendly enough level that they'd be comfortable with that. And yeah, it's always trying to find mm-hmm. that balance. For me, Africa as a whole, before we even came, was all about the wildlife. Like, I was just so excited to experience that side of the world because you can go so many places in the world, but you can't beat the wildlife mm-hmm. in Africa. And my granddad used to go, he's been on three or four trips. And so even I think I was like 10 years old, the first time he came home and he makes photo books from all of his trips. So he came to, we were living in Texas at the time and showed us his photo book from Africa. And I was like, I must go, you know, like ever since then. So this is going on 15 years or longer. How old am I now? 20 years of me daydreaming about this. And to finally be here, like my 
first experience, it was so simple. It was zebra that we saw. And I like broke down in tears because I was like, oh my gosh, I'm photographing a zebra in Africa. It's more than just a zebra. Yeah. Yeah. And I told the farmer, bless his heart, I told the farmer, Oh my gosh, you just saw a zebra. And he's like, zebras are so common here. Same, he was same like, Same with ostrich. We yeah. Were like, oh, oh, look, at ostrich. Yeah. look at the ostriches, and, you know. Just, and the locals like, yeah. an ostrich. It's, it's like, like seeing a pigeon. Or like know? a sheep or whatever, you know, in England. Where was the zebra? The zebra was in, we had just come out of Lesotho. We crossed the border back oh, into South yeah, Africa yeah, yeah. and we went to this little farm we found on Ioverlander. A fantastic place. There was no one little else there. farm on it. And so casual, we pull in and he said, oh, if you guys want to go for a drive, you're welcome to go for a drive on the property. We still didn't fully realize that this was like a proper game reserve and or like a private game reserve. Private game reserve. Basically, it's a game drive, a self game drive. Yeah. But we didn't know. We thought it was just a campsite and they're like, oh, just drive up the hill there and go and have a look. And then yeah. we came over the hill and all of a sudden there were, oh there were wildebeests and zebras and yeah. like, ostriches running around and yeah. all sorts of, I was just like, oh, this is that for me throughout the trip has been such a neat thing. Plus, I think some of the landscape that you get here, like Sandwich Harbor, where else in the world do the dunes and ocean meet? Or That's on the, the coast of Namibia. Yeah. yeah, we almost lost our vehicle there. So Tell that, us about that. <laughs> classic. We thought, oh, yeah. We got humbled. We we basically, yes, mm. we quickly got humbled by Namibia. We thought, oh, we don't need a guide. Plenty of people have done this. Like, because a, a lot of, it's hard to like find out what is just a tourist trap and, yeah. and what isn't. The people are always, no matter when you go abroad, they're like, oh yeah, you have to have a guide. You have to have the, yeah. most of the time you don't. After that, we were like, oh, maybe <laughs> oh, maybe we should. guide's not such a bad idea for this route. Basically the tide, there's a very short window that you can drive. It's a very simple route. It's one way in, one way out, but the tide is what you really are playing with there. So so there's maybe an hour window that you have to go in and out depending on the time of year and the tides that day and all of that moon can, cycle yeah moon, that was moon something cycle. like moon we're not even surfers and stuff so we don't really know much about tides. i just looked at the tide chart and i talked to a couple locals and i talked to a couple tour guide companies just on a, like a personal level to say hey do you think we can do this and they're like yeah the tide looks great for that day we went exactly at the right time we went in we turned around exactly at low tide and we start coming out and we get stuck and the funny thing is going down there although you know you got your heart raised and, and what have you. I mean, we're so top-heavy that... Yeah, we're a top-heavy vehicle. It got your heart going and we're like, oh, wow, we've made it. And it didn't feel like such a big deal because when everything goes right, everything's yeah. going right. Yeah. Yes. And then, so as option at that point is to go back over the big dunes yeah. and work your way back that way or just turn around. Plan. And, and you don't really know what the dunes are like in there, do yes. you? That was part of the problem is we are such a top heavy vehicle. We had just come down this route and we are bouncing back and forth. And there was a few times where I was like, okay, we are going into the ocean. So we get down to this point and the options are going up this incredibly steep sand dune that we don't know. And then, okay, say you get up there and you can't make it out of that situation. Well, now you're stuck for a full 24 or what, 12 hours until the tides come back down for us to make our way out. So we decided, okay, let's just turn around and go back out. It was fine coming in. We can make it out. We're exactly at low tide. Like we've got probably 30 to 45 minutes before the tide's going to come back in to where the tracks are going to be covered. But unfortunately we turned around and maybe five minutes down the sand we ended up getting stuck we made a video of this and we i happened to have the drone up in the air and luckily we're with our friends harry and chloe as well yeah so they jumped out of the car they're running down with max tracks we get the max tracks off the top i throw the drone into the car like the, the controller remote. please be there when i come back little drone you know yeah we ended up getting 
unstuck. Thankfully, a tour guide actually ran out and was like, hey, you need to reverse back down to the water, which is counterintuitive when you're in that situation, you're trying mm. to get away from the water. And he was like, no, you just got to go back down and get closer to the water so you can get on the harder stuff to get out. And we got out. It was maybe five to 10 minutes max. That I we probably were wasn't stuck. even five minutes, but, but like you know, every minute felt like 10 and, minutes. And yeah, and then we raced the tide basically to get back out. Yeah, <laughs> and like literally the, the tide will come in and you'll stop, <laughs> let it go out and then keep yeah. going, you know, because it's, and that time of the year as well, there's a lot of freak waves, which we found out only a week later. A week after we yeah. did it, I think it were a Hilux, got a freak wave, hit it, it went up into the airbox, sucked it into the engine, stalled the engine, couldn't yeah. get it going again. Then the wave came in, turned the Hilux onto its roof and the dust, everything. Yeah. So that's one thing is like with that route, a lot of people said, oh, you guys were silly for even trying it without a tour guide. But the irony is that the following week, that vehicle that Andy's talking about was a tour guide. So he uh, drives that route every single day. Yeah, he's done it hundreds of and times. he went out, there was a freak wave that came and it's just a very gnarly route. That's all there is to it. So I'm glad we did it and checked it off the old bucket list, but I don't think I would do it again in my own vehicle. I think I would just happily go sit in a tour guide's vehicle and yeah. go on a very way. <laughs> Let him use his insurance. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Any other experiences in either South Africa or Namibia that really resonated or you recommend to other people? I think Apupa Falls, which is where we met the Himba people, that was incredible. And especially after the Orange River in South Africa, which is right on the border, you cross into Namibia. Yeah, but uh, orange, that Orange River route as well that Adrian suggested to us. Oh, the Namakwa 4x4 trail. That was a really, yeah. really cool trail. So we did the Namakwa 4x4 trail, which is fantastic. I think you guys did it as well. We did. It, it was, was so great. cool. Yep. And then we crossed into Namibia from the Orange River, which is the Namakwa 4x4 trail, all the way to the top of Namibia. You don't see another ounce of water, or at least we didn't during that time of year. And so when we finally met up with, made it to a Poopa Falls, we were like, oh my gosh, this is no oasis. You know, it's just so lush and green and different than everywhere else in Namibia. So mm -hmm. there's some really great campgrounds yeah. in that area. Yeah, fantastic. You and can just live in that little Just park. a simple thing for me, like coming from England, everything's tarmac, you know, and, and oh, it's yeah. a small country. So just being on gravel roads like i think we entered namibia wherever we entered on the south we didn't see another gravel road uh, another tarmac road for till we got to windhoek and we'd done hundreds of miles by that point mm. so just to be on actually using your vehicle for what it's made for like basically that that defender we've got is overkill for the uk you're probably better off having a camper van but out here actually using that vehicle what it was built for and putting it through its paces and yeah and looking back and the african sunset like how you've seen it on tv and there's dust coming off and like it's getting glown up and all the dust going orange and I'm, i just i look back no in the mirror place. probably every day and i'm like <laughs> he's like look at the is, dust trail like look at that like light the dust, you know the dust look, feel like i'm in a fighter jet you know what i mean <laughs> yeah. like, wow this yeah. is uh, this is cool yeah it's a, a cool moment of his life that we're in right now i do feel like africa for the overlanding side of things is like a completely different beast than anywhere else that we've been like it's really tough on your vehicle that's something that I would, if anyone's considering doing a trip out here, like really do all the maintenance, do all the things that... I'd actually also consider, obviously I'm a Land Rover guy, we're driving a Defender. Think about, rather than if you're not a mechanic yourself and you're gonna pay for a mechanic in the UK to do your maintenance, pre-maintenance before you do this trip, I'd actually think about shipping it to here, getting one of the local mechanics mm -hmm. here, like we, there's a good, 
company in uh, uh, Cape Town area called Gateway 4x4 or that guy that we use yeah. near uh, Lesotho. Because they know they see things that our mechanics in the UK will see. Because mm. you're going to be driving on hundreds and hundreds of miles of corrugated roads. Our mechanics in the UK mm. will take something apart and they'll be like, "Oh, that wiring loom doesn't need to go back there, or that bolt doesn't need yeah. to go back in." Every single bolt needs to be perfect, mm. and your wiring loom needs to be pushed back or do extra things like things that we'd never think of. So for instance, this engine that we've got, it's the Ford Ranger or the Ford Transit engine in the Devender. And it's just got an engine cover where that engine cover sits on top of the plastic rocker cover and that moves. So if you let it, it'll just wear a hole in the top of your engine basically. Yeah. You know, other things like I just noticed yesterday, just cause I always just do maintenance all the time, just keep an eye on things. You have to here. I didn't, yeah. I didn't put a tie wrap back on and I've just noticed the rattling, the cable that goes to my mass airflow sensor, I can see the copper on it. So it's just about to wear through. And that's just because the vibrations out here on these corrugated yeah. roads are, if there's anything wrong with your vehicle or partly wrong or about to be wrong, these African roads will find that. <laughs> yeah, 100%. They'll put it to the test. Everything is just rattle, 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 yeah. rattle, rattle, rattle. Yeah. Somebody um, referenced the, <laughs> they called it an, it was a local was talking about the African massage. It's yeah. like, yeah. how yeah. you feel yeah, 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 in your yeah, vehicle yeah, yeah. all the There's time. There's been a few times that we'll be driving in the car and we're just both like, uh, <laughs> we're looking at each other like, is this real life right now? Mm -hmm. Because it's just, like I said, it's just a completely different beast than anywhere else that we've been. And your accessories, all your aftermarket accessories, you kind of have to start worrying about those because yeah. things will start unscrewing themselves. Yeah. And so every single extra thing you put on, yeah. you kind of have to be watching all the time. Yeah. Yeah. On your pre-inspection and all that, one thing that I would suggest doing is going around every bolt with like a yellow pen marker and then mark everything and then you'll see straight away rotating. like just do a visual inspection every morning before you set off you know like end of day like you're driving you home it's all right for weekend warriors or whatever to go smash a bit of rock crawling or whatever they want to do but that ain't gonna get you from cape town back to england if you drive like that yeah you'll have, a, you'll have fun in that short time though but. <laughs> yeah what has camping been like here there's such a camp culture that mm. I haven't experienced before. So yes. I'm not answering the question, but it's just a different, I've never experienced camping like this before. Yeah. The culture here is like, you think, you know, we think, oh, overlanding oh, in the US and everyone meets up at a show and it's like, people are just now getting into the industry or whatever, overlanding's becoming a thing. Here, it is like a cultural phenomenon. It has been going for ages and people are just raised on it. So they, they don't yeah. go on family vacations overseas, they go camping and there's- Generalizing. Yeah, no, but you know what I mean? Like, uh, so but like many a not, your average family is, your holiday is, we're gonna, and they are not scared to crank the out up, the miles as well. They miles. might they might live in Cape Town, they're like, right, we're gonna be in the top of Namibia by tomorrow. Yes, and waking up at 3 a.m. Yeah. Yes. So and they so, will smash out a thousand miles in a day and then get to where they wanna go, and they will go past you on those gravel roads at <laughs> like 90 yeah. miles an hour with a trailer yeah. on. Yeah, that's a big part of their culture is spending time camping as a family. Which is and, so neat to see. There's so many families out there, there's so many older people out there as well like in the US or the UK you generally get the younger population say like up to 40 45 or whatever here it's like it's very common to be the youngest person on a trail or the youngest person at a campsite and that's just because people are so ingrained that's just part, yeah, it's of, their part of their life basically yeah. but it's also great because it may, means for international overlanders you get to come here and there's fantastic facilities so there's great campsites everywhere you want to go Donkey boilers for your hot yeah, water. Yeah, like, I love donkey yeah. boilers. 
guys yeah. in showering yes. outside. Yes, it's so good. So there's, and Bry's at every single campsite. I, I was there's, just about to say that, like Bry into the South African to us cooking on wood is something you'll only do when you're camping when you we've been invited to quite a few locals homes and they've got basically a campfire inside the yeah. house and they'll make food yeah. indoors like that too it's a religion yeah. yes bride yes oh also for anybody who's listening and doesn't know what a donkey boiler is we got really excited about the donkey <laughs> boiler but um or a bride for instance well, or a bride that's, yeah. a, that's a barbecue let's, let's but cooking on wood yes define yeah. yeah so a donkey boiler is basically like a usually like a metal tin that you put a fire in and then the water is pulled around correct but, the- yeah basically you're, you're heating up like a metal tank with firewood yeah. and then that will be how your showers yeah so the water is getting pumped through but it's the water is heating up as it passes over the fire and then it's going to the shower so you're getting a hot shower which in a, the middle of nowhere where otherwise this rugged rustic campsite wouldn't have um you can still have a hot it's shower the locals flying yeah. Up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then a braai a braai is basically like a barbecue or but using but firewood. you're using firewood so so you'll make your own coal so it takes longer but it's all yeah. part of it yeah which is a huge thing everyone gets to their campsite they put the fire on they have a crack a couple of beers and then they like over a two to three hour period will braai their food and enjoy it and yeah. stuff as a group. I thought really cool. I thought the English could drink until we came to South Africa. <laughs> yeah. Rum and Coke. Rum oh and Coke. Yeah. Beers oh, all yeah. day. Yeah. And, yeah. and a lot of meat. Gotta be the brandy in There's though. a lot of meat yeah. 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 We went to a few brides and you know, what do you bring to a bride? They have so much stuff already, so I'd always bring like a salad or something, and they're like, we don't eat salad here. That's not that's not a thing. Chicken is our Chicken salad. Is salad. <laughs> Been fun to see mm-hmm. the cultural differences. Funny, like traveling as a couple, I wouldn't spend the time to make a fire just for the two of us very often. Mm-hmm. But here, it's really yeah, yeah. I love it. It's and we've been doing it. it. Like, yeah, we're like nearly every almost night. Almost every single night. I think they we've just fully embraced the South African ways, and we've just been frying as often as we can because it's also nice to you know we have induction or we have the option to bry basically and so it's been nice to just get out and enjoy and really soak up whatever campsite or camp spot that we're at here it does seem to be an easy thing to do that's really lovely here yeah like mm-hmm. i would definitely yeah. just keep doing it yeah yeah, and yeah. doing it and it's, it's one of those things yeah. like wherever you go in the world you'll take something back home with yeah. you and like Brian like, Andy and I are like okay when we have our house in the US or wherever we end up we will have a bride inside of our house like we are taking that little piece of South Africa we're going to bring it back with yeah. us indoor so bride cool. and yeah. a communal like hangout yep any favorite meat cuts I feel like they're really passionate we've been eating a lot of lamb here which I don't usually eat much lamb at home but I don't know just a bit, a bit of everything. If somebody was interested in coming to, let's say, South Africa or Namibia, because yeah. you guys have spent most of your time in those two countries, yeah. what advice or practical tips would you give them? I'd say the first thing is don't listen to all the fear mongering mm. about Southern Africa, because that alone could probably put you off. This is one of the safest places I've felt. It just feels, I, mean, I feel as just as safe here as I do in, in England. 
Well, there was even some places in Europe that I felt less, yeah, less yeah. safe than here. Definitely. But before we came, we were told, even from a lot of South Africans, and obviously living here may be a different experience, and I'm not discrediting anything that's happened to anyone, but there was a lot of fear put into us of like, you do not stop at a stoplight. You do not do this. You do not, you are going to get robbed. Just get ready for the gunpoint. Like all of this stuff. Especially in Johannesburg. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so we came down mentally prepared for that. And we're almost like, oh my gosh, any second, anything could happen. And it has been the exact opposite. And everyone's been so welcoming and we've had a fantastic experience. So I would definitely recommend anyone that's coming down here. Like, yes, talk to locals. Always great to talk to locals and hear we're not to go and what not to do but I would definitely recommend speaking to people that have traveled it recently and make sure that what's the actual boots on the ground story and that mm-hmm. could be true for anywhere that you travel um, if you look at the media side of things you're going to get a completely different story than what you're going to get actually there so. I think bas- if you just do the basics like don't drive at night yeah. stick to the speed limits yeah yeah you'll be fine yeah i would say like a recommendation for a short trip is what we've just done like yeah. mary hannah just brought her mum out and we've so we've flown into johannesburg then we've drove from johannesburg south to the bottom of kruger and then worked his way up through kruger and then come is it the panor the panorama route is coming back down so we basically went like southern kruger all the way up to i think it's tinsay rustic camp Mopani area and then we came out of the park and took the panorama route back down and then came back over and it was I think 10 or 11 days in total and it was just a fantastic trip and the best wildlife we've seen anywhere anywhere. and I I know like a lot of people as well will say like oh Kruger's a bit touristy and and all this but we went when Kruger were fully booked up Kruger's that big that there's there's plenty to see still and you're not going to be like overwhelmed by but we saw within the first 30 minutes of being in Kruger we saw more animals there than we'd seen in the last four and a half months in the rest of southern Africa I mean the only thing that was comparable was like the private game reserve that we went to there was one just outside of Port Elizabeth that we went to but it's Scotia but it's such a small reserve that it's a completely different experience than seeing animals that are free to roam in this massive space so I think going into it we had heard from a lot of locals and a lot of people that have been there like oh i don't really know if you're gonna like it and we absolutely loved it so i think if anyone wanted to do like a short trip a two-week trip a two-week in south trip, africa fly like, in and out of johannesburg if you're from the u.s atlanta to johannesburg direct flight and do that route it's phenomenal and once you get on the ground like the initial cost of the flights can yeah. be expensive yeah. but um i think it's a pretty good place for the budget-minded traveler yes. we just paid 800 dollars di- direct flight to atlanta uh, yeah, it was $800 for the direct flight per person. And then my mom came out for two weeks, I was telling you earlier, and I tallied up everything because I just put it all on my card and then we just, you know, worked it out later. And I think she paid $650 in total for the entire 12 days that she was here, which is phenomenal for everything that we got to see in that period of time. So, yeah, I would definitely... Mm-hmm. recommend looking into that if anyone's wanting to come in for a short little jaunt thank you yeah. that's amazing so it is getting dark we need to go <laughs> do our bride um and work. africa's colder than you think yeah that. if yes. you come this time of year yeah we're bring sat shivering now <laughs> so bring your woolly hat snow two months ago here it's cold yeah thank you guys so much for taking the time and where can we find you on the internet we are handle is expedition rove or our website or whatever so yeah website instagram instagram 
YouTube kind of sometimes, not really consistently. If you, if you were interested in our build, we do have one good video for YouTube, which is our build walk around. So for all guys who are really into gadgets <laughs> yeah. and stuff, that's a, a detailed yeah. over, overview. But if you've not seen us before and you're flicking through Instagram, Expedition Rove, it's a bright orange Defender. Yeah, I can't miss it. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you again so much for taking the time to yeah. sit down with me, share your stories and your experience and tips with the Overland Journal podcast listeners. Yeah, thank you again. And let's go hit some bry. Yeah, yeah let's bry. Let's do it. Thank you. Okay. <laughs>